Welcome to BIB Today, we're the daily business podcast from the Business and Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on in the show, BIB's tech panel will discuss the implications of the European Union's new general data protection regulation. Coming up, we'll have a look at a new UBC report that examines the causes of Vancouver's high cost of housing. That will be followed by a conversation with the City of Toronto's former chief planner, Jennifer Keysmap. Stay with us. The BC-based Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology has partnered with a Quebec startup called Milo to help the organization fundraise through recurring micro-donations. Joining us to talk more about this new partnership is Danielle Livengood, Vice President at the Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology. She joins us in studio. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And joining us on the line from Montreal is Phil Barrar, CEO and founder of Milo Financial Technologies. Thanks for joining us, Phil. My pleasure. Why don't we start with you? Tell us how Milo works and what the story is behind the company. Yeah, so Milo is a micro-investing application that we launched back in July of 2017. It connects with your existing credit and debit cards. Every time you make a purchase with that existing credit and debit card, it runs it up to the nearest dollar takes the spare change and puts it into an investment account. So we're helping millions of Canadians start uh, saving and investing with just every purchase they make. Interesting. So sort of like the, the digital version of if you bought something with a $10 bill, you put the change in the tip jar, but in this case, the tip jar is a, a savings account. Absolutely. So people are saving for small goals like a new iPhone or going on vacation to larger goals like buying a house or even saving for retirement. Okay. And Danielle, how did you first connect with Milo? Actually, Milo approached us. Um, also, I'll save you the mouthful of Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology. <laughs> we like to call it Squist. So we'll much easier. Uh-huh. So Milo reached out to Squist um, and s- invited us to be one of their featured charities uh, when they launched their Roundup to Give program, which is essentially instead of your money going into your savings account toward that new iPhone or vacation, uh, you can actually donate it to a registered charity using the Canada Helps platform. And so how does it help? your organization? That's uh, a great question. Yeah. Uh, So Squist, uh, we diversify our revenue streams as much as possible. Uh, We have different endowments that we rely on every year. We apply for a lot of grants, but increasingly the grant space uh, has required that every grant application be a new project. So you got to start something new. You can't support something you already do. And um, rarely do they include any funding for administrative or overhead costs. So uh, being able to find uh, additional ways to get donations and money that is, let's say, uh, free of strings, so to speak, um, really helps us keep our key programs continuing instead of continuing to develop new things that can't be supported financially. Does essentially almost a crowdsourced form of funding uh, augment that independence that you want? It's it's an interesting thing to see because we've never done like a proper crowdfunding campaign. Uh, Squist has been around since 1981. And so we've done a lot of different ways of, of collecting money. And this year we've started a few new ones. And these small donation things really add up when you have a bunch of supporters, a bunch of members who are all participating, whether it's donating airline miles or using a Thrifty Smiles card or using the Milo app. Um, it it all adds up. You might think those little tiny amounts of change don't matter, but they really do. So Phil, do do donors then get something like a tax receipt or a tax benefit for what it is they're doing for this? 
Absolutely. So donor would get uh, alongside their investment uh, receipts for tax purposes at the end of the year, they get all their charitable receipts directly within the MILO application. So um, they can go through and make uh, these small recurring uh, donations on a, a more frequent basis and then go through and, and have um, just a single tax receipt available to them when, uh, when they're looking to file their taxes at the end of the year. And how did you choose which organizations to partnership for the launch of this? Absolutely. So we actually launched this across the country. And um, when we were looking for maybe local partners, uh, we really went back to our, our user base and all of our user base are, are millennials. And we wanted to stand behind the causes that they care about uh, with the conversations around equality and promoting women in STEM careers. We, how could we not get involved with Schwiss? Uh, so they were a great local partner for us in Vancouver and, and launching Milo uh, Roundup to Give in, uh, in BC. And you know, on the basis of what you might be able to uh, to acquire in the way of donations and all of this, does it at all um, influence where your programming might go? Luckily, no. <laughs> I think that's a good thing, though. Um, since Squist has been around for what are we at thirty seven years now, um, we've uh, we adjust our programs on an ongoing basis based on what the community's uh, experiencing because the problems that women getting into STEM fields experienced in the 80s are not the same problems of today. And so we're constantly changing and shifting directions. But luckily, donations like this from uh, private donors allow us to choose those directions without having those external stakeholders demanding what we choose to do. And I imagine, too, this is a way to, to in, a, in a relatively cost-efficient way, acquire donations as opposed to, say, the cost that would go into hosting events and raising awareness. Absolutely. We're actually a volunteer-run organization. We have a working board of 10 women from across different sectors. We have a couple paid contractors, but we have no one going out there fundraising or schmoozing. I mean, we all do this off the end of our desks. So yeah, having this somewhat passive income uh, to the organization, and I think it's really important that the people who are donating get those tax receipts because that's a real motivator for people. So overall, this program really fits with what we need. And Phil, in terms of what um, Milo has been doing uh, involving all of this. Uh, how does how does the society's uh, efforts uh, play into the broader range of services that you want to uh, to help effect? So we want to help people achieve all aspects of their their financial life directly within one application. I think this is one great way to support the causes that they care about. Um, above and beyond that, uh, we're working directly with the society to be able to offer $5 of free donations for any one of their users who decides to give through this platform for the very first time. So what we do is we match uh, these donations uh, directly through that platform as well. So it, it, it's a great way for us to encourage our users to get involved and contribute to the causes they care about and for uh, working with great charities to, to fundraise even more. Because the of the ease of it, uh, because of you're using an app, uh, so you're not filling out paperwork in the same way that a lot of other people would in order to get uh, a contribution uh, effected. Does that lead uh, to a behavior uh, with with individuals that they then begin to be more conscious time and again when they have, say, spare money? They have they they want to look at you know thirty or fifty or a hundred dollars to donate. That that the app makes it just. A lot simpler for us. So 
overall donations have been going down over the past few years, but online giving has going up. So we've seen a shift in the way that people want to start giving. Mm-hmm. And I think this just makes it more accessible, right? They're giving more frequent, smaller donations, the way that we used to have pocket change and give to the local charities that we wanted to support. As we move to a cashless society, um, I believe that this is a way for them to continue those same kind of behaviors and, and ways of donating that they did before. It's simple. It's easy to do. You can do it directly in minutes, directly on a mobile application and, and have access to uh, great organizations like Swiss and 86,000 other uh, Canadian charities as well. Yeah, Roundup to Give, uh, it just launched. There's 86,000 other charities, did you say? 8,600? 86,000 charities. So every registered uh, Canadian charity is available directly through the mobile application. There you go. So, Danielle, now that this is an option available to Schwiss, does the challenge then become, okay, how do we raise awareness for our society amongst 86,000 other options? Well, we hope that being one of the featured uh, charities at their launch will uh, help that. But also, I feel like uh, people tend to give to the organizations they're already aware of. Not a lot of people just go scrolling through that 86,000 list to try to find something. And we hope that like, we're pretty unique as far as uh, women in STEM organizations go and that we have the long legacy and history to rely on. Uh, but we also offer programs from youth, work, working professionals. Uh, we have a program for immigrating women in science. We're trying to adapt to being new to Canada, as well as our new status of women Canada project, which focuses on working with employers to increase diversity in the workplace. So we have a pretty big portfolio to appeal to a lot of different people. Um, and I think that helps us stand out. Have you set out on this, uh, on this new project with any kind of an aim, an objective of, say, how much money you might be able to get out of a, out of a, a procedure like this? Not really. We're trying to increase awareness, obviously. As Phil said, um, it, when people use the link that we've got for Squist specifically, we get $5 if they sign up to the Milo app. That's amazing. That's just to get started. So that's great. We haven't set a goal. We've currently been establishing a new endowment fund for our organization, the Spirit of Squist Endowment Fund. And uh, so we've been trying to raise $36,000 to celebrate our 36th year, mm-hmm. uh, which is just coming to a close. So uh, I think we're just going to wait and see how it pans out. We hope that people will sign up and, and use the link specifically that gets us the donation. And uh, we're hoping for the best. Best of luck with that. Danielle, Phil, thank you both very much oh, for joining us. We should get us. before we go. Uh, where do you go? Online. Yeah. Where do you go, Phil? Oh, it's a complicated link. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So it's a complicated link, but if you go to the Milo, if you download the Milo application through either the Play Store or App Store and type in the promo code Milo10, you can then uh, donate that $10 to the uh, Swiss uh, directly by setting up a charitable goal for that foundation. Perfect. Great. Again, Danielle, Phil, thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks thank for so having much. me. In studio with us was Danielle Livengood, a board member and vice president at the Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology, SWIST. And on the line in Montreal, Phil Barrar, CEO and founder at Milo Financial Technologies. We continue on the topic of housing with our next guest, the former chief planner for the city of Toronto. Jennifer Kiesmat is currently the CEO of the Creative Housing Society, a new national partnership to advance building affordable rental housing 
across Canada. She's in Vancouver this week to talk smart city technology at the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. She's also speaking about innovative solutions to affordability challenges at Red Talks 2018, which takes place tonight. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us on the program. It's my pleasure. I I have to ask you right off the bat, would you love to get your hands on Vancouver? (laughs) Ooh, would I? (laughs) Yes, Vancouver is a very exciting city with, uh, well, which is just, you know, it's coming into its own. There's a ton that needs to be done, but it's on the right trajectory, which is a dream for a planner. Yeah. What, What do you like about what is happening here now? I think that Vancouver has um, always embraced and really been on the cusp of thinking about design and density in a way that many other North American cities hadn't. Um, And now is at a point where there's there's enough critical mass of projects uh, like South Falls Creek that begin to define the character of the city and and point a way forward. So I think that um, there's a lot to build on here. There's, there's a ton to be done for sure, but there's a lot to build on. Yeah, and doing that is certainly a challenge given the, the affordability challenges facing cities, including Vancouver and Toronto. For your new society, what do you mean by creative housing and what are some of the creative solutions you're looking at implementing in cities like ours? So to take it back a little step, um, part of creating walkable, transit-oriented cities that are really dense is about creating dynamic economies where there's a critical mass of people and activities, and it's possible to live in a smaller environmental footprint and really to get around your city on foot or a short transit ride from where you need to go. And one of the things that we've seen in both Vancouver and Toronto is that as we've become more and more successful in living, uh, in delivering on that promise of very urban living that also offers a high quality of life, that it has been like a, it's, it's been like a vortex of activity, tra- attracting capital and people from all over the world, which on the one hand is very flattering, and on the other hand, creates this affordability crisis, um, in part because I think we really didn't appreciate uh, in many of our Canadian cities that when we started to really get them right, the extent to which we would become so popular on a global stage and have so much interest on a global stage. And so I think we're struggling right now with a model of housing that may have worked uh, 20 years ago. It may have worked 15 years ago. Um, The problem has been growing and becoming more acute in, in Vancouver for a bit of a longer period than it has in Toronto, but it's, you know, we in Toronto, we used to point at Vancouver and say, wow, how can people afford to live there? Uh, and I was in Halifax last week in there. Halifax said, wow, we, we point at Vancouver and Toronto and say, how can people afford to live there? Yeah. And I said to him, well, be, well, be careful, because if you get your city building right, um, you're, you know, don't don't be too coy. Uh, you could have the same challenges that we have. So I think really this is a problem of success and it's important not to lose sight of that. It's also a crisis. It's at a point now where something really should have been done much sooner. And uh, the Creative Housing Society is about seeking to address that at scale. As a nonprofit organization, the goal is to partner with uh, governments at all levels, whether it be federal, municipal, or provincial, to use land that currently exists that is either underdeveloped or is looking for a use, needs to be redeveloped to deliver affordable, 
rental housing right in the core of our cities and in the locations where it's needed most at scale. I will say that having moved from Toronto here uh, 15 years ago, that I've never heard a Vancouverite say, how does anyone af- afford to live there <laughs> anywhere else? <laughs> that's yeah. something that's only said about us. Uh, but, but you say that um, we're living in a lot of ways with a bit of an old paradigm on a couple of areas. And I wonder whether one of them is also just the idea that, uh, that you know, we're also living with this, uh, this, this in- impression that uh, the, a younger generation is obsessed with home ownership and that needs to get ownership and is not uh, is not actually uh, very delighted to have affordable rental housing uh, as as an element in their lives for a long time. Well, you know what's really funny? I contemplated naming my talk tonight the end of owner the end of home ownership um, <laughs> to really put a fine point on it. And the irony is, the end of home ownership doesn't make anyone. Uh, anyone really very nervous um, other than um, older homeowners uh, who, quite frankly, have benefited greatly from homeownership. But there's a younger generation who knows that this idea of your home as being a financial investment is something that, well, first of all, it doesn't hold true if you can't even get a home in the first place. And secondly, I think this is where the model needs to be upended it has turned out it's not a good way to ensure that we're providing housing for all, having this for-profit model and this assumption that everyone will be housed based on a for-profit model. And also that idea that you're going to generate equity that's going to be a nest egg sometime in the future, um, there's absolutely no reason to believe that that idea continues to hold true. And you know, there's some pretty rigorous analysis that's been undertaken recently that demonstrates that uh, home ownership is in fact not the best way to be uh, generating any kind of a nest egg or yeah. any kind of long-term equity. Yeah, I, I was reading a piece this week, actually, I think in Quartz, that also identifies the fact that for millennials, um, education is going to be their wealth mm-hmm. generation, not home ownership. Right, right. That, that's very interesting. But it's, but it's a funny thing because the minute that you start to say, well, hold on a minute, why do we idealize ownership so much? Well, in part, it's because we've associated it with, uh, we've associated it with generating equity as opposed to, you know, a stable home. It's been about generating equity over the long term. But there's another reason, which is that we've also associated with rental with being sort of unstable. And that's where creative housing comes in. What we would like to do, we want to build really high-quality rental housing that's green, that's sustainable, that's well-designed, including for families, uh, that is in excellent locations. We will only build projects on transit because philosophically we believe that's a critical part of overall household affordability is being able to live without a car. Um, If you... If you start to see that kind of an affordable rental product, then all of a sudden you go, hold on a minute. Uh, what was the advantage of home ownership again? What was the advantage? Because if it's not generating long-term equity and if there is an option for rental that is really great, high-quality, well-maintained, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is what happens when people come into our program um, because they are that median income between 40, you know, households that are living on between 40 and $80,000 a year. What happens if people end up earning significantly more, 
but they want to stay. Hmm. And ironically, I think that would be the ultimate marker of success that people want to stay, even though they could afford to live somewhere else, because they're in a great community, they feel well housed, all their needs are being met. So that would actually be the, the, the best possible scenario. Now, we do want to ensure, ensure that we're keeping the absolute majority of our product to be, it will all be at an affordable, uh, affordable rent, but we want to be providing access to that affordable housing for people who, who need it most. Um, but it raises an interesting question because we've sort of bought into this idea that um, you only live in rental because you, you, it's either a stepping stone to ownership or because you don't have other choices. You know, there's, there's a lot of kind of mythologies about renting. And part of the opportunity, I think, today, in light of our affordability of crisis, is, well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. There's a better way to house people to house young people, to house seniors, to house families, that takes away the instability, that takes away the sense of risk. There's a better way to do it. And it's a model that doesn't assume that you're generating equity. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. I'm curious what you think the role of the private sector could be in this and whether developers are incentivized to bring about, say, rental housing for the market. Well, it's interesting because most of the affordable rental that has been built across Canada uh, over the past um, 10, 20 years has been built by the private sector. Um, and it's been built as a result of a variety of incentives that have been put in place, um, mostly at the, at the municipal level in the context of the contribution of land. Uh, and that's not a bad thing at all. We've, we want to build that scale. We want to build significantly more affordable rental, which is why we chose to go with a non, non-profit model um, so that any revenues that are generated from a project actually go back into developing more affordable rental. That's the way we structured, structured the model. Um, but I think there, there's always been a role for the private sector. And there's lots of private sector players who will continue to play a role in developing this kind of, kind of housing, whether that be, you know, architects with a private firm or others. Um, not unlike other, uh, projects that are based on a participation of the private sector in delivering some kind of public good. Look at the Canada Line, right? The Canada mm-hmm. Line was built privately. Um, it's, I understand it's operated privately, um, but it is a public good that has been funded. Uh, so we can't take that at all and actually apply it to housing. And we just, we haven't done it at scale. We've just done it in tiny bits and pieces. Yeah. It, uh, you raise a couple of interesting points there that I want to pursue. One, one is, uh, of course, the idea that we want to try to build uh, this purpose-built rental housing near transit. And yet, of course, we've telegraphed our transit intentions uh, so consciously in our community here that in a lot of ways, the speculation by developers took place all around the transit corridors. And they, they very clearly have staked themselves on for a for-profit model along there. So I'm wondering, first off, how how you can get that turned around so that really we, you have, you know, the, the kind of housing that uh, that Creative Housing Society wants to generate uh, near transit, especially near mass transit. And the second part is, is you uh, hearkened earlier to the, the notion of people staying in rental property and, and really enjoying it. And one of the, clearly the, one of the duresses one of the stresses that a renter has is the is the tenancy and and the 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 threat that often comes 
with being evicted or having a property turned over or, you know, that the lack of stability there and tenancy and, and, uh, is, is really a problem. So let's start me off with the, the one about how you, how you get the housing matched up on the right streets in, in, in a situation like this. Well, in a longer term, in a longer term model, that begins with the municipality uh, taking responsibility and actually in advance of building the infrastructure, purchasing the lands along the corridor um, and reserving them for that affordable housing stock. Right. Uh, transit agencies typically do own a considerable amount of land, whether it's protected for right of way or for station locations. And so there is an opportunity to integrate the affordable housing component on the lands that are in, in the public domain. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I've been hearing about all these different areas. You know, Ottawa has a site that's almost seven acres of Ottawa. It's on the LRT. Um, and I was approached by someone in Ottawa who said, hey, this, this is where we, that you're talking about. That's, that's affordable. That's really high quality. That's affordable. And um, so I think there's, there tends to be more opportunities than you think. That mm-hmm. might not entirely be the case in, uh, in Vancouver, but it is the case in Toronto and other cities, that if you start to look at between all three levels of government, the lands that are in public ownership, there's quite a bit of land. Then there's also other opportunities to look at partners like universities, um, churches, uh, other land owners that have some kind of broader public interest who might be in close proximity to that corridor, who might not have the expertise to develop housing, but who would be very willing to partner with a nonprofit agency that does have the expertise to deliver and manage housing. So yeah. okay. I think there's, you know, it's, it's kind of a multifaceted approach where you have to look at every corridor and say, what are the opportunities along this corridor specifically? Um, yeah. I okay. Think that's the, All right. So that, that's good. Then, then tell me about what has to happen. I guess at a provincial level, in order to secure the tenancy of uh, of renters, so that they're not living with this insecurity or anxiety that tends to pervade uh, a typical renter about, you know, will I get my lease renewed? This is an essential question and issue that is at the heart of why we created uh, creative housing. Because um, tenants being bumped out of their um, units is one of the reasons that people will often reach for homeownership that they yep. really can't afford yep, because exactly. they feel like it's more stable. Mm-hmm. So we thought long and hard about this at Creative Housing, and there's a couple of ways into this. One, we are the only agency that, that we know of, of our kind of scale that is committed to keeping the units affordable in perpetuity. So what's happened in the absence of there being a strong nonprofit sector at scale doing this across the country, for larger projects, private developers have been recruited by governments to deliver affordable housing. And the way governments have gotten those private developers at the table is saying, look, we want you to build affordable housing and uh, affordable rental, keep it affordable for 10 years or keep it affordable for 20 years. And after that, the asset is yours and you can do whatever you want with it. And this has actually been a very common model across Canada. And it's been a way of enticing the private sector to deliver some housing units. From my perspective, 10 units is a really, 10 years or 20 years is a very short period of time. Sure it is. And it actually perpetuates, it perpetuates this problem of rental being unstable because, hey, 
10, 20 years from now, your rent's going to shoot up when all these units become market units and you're going to have to move somewhere else. And oh, by the way, we built a lot of units on this format. So there's going to be a crisis of other people who are getting bumped out of their units at the same period of time. So I actually think that was a fundamentally flawed model and creative housing is very much in response to that. And it's why we're so committed that the affordable units need to be affordable in perpetuity. Now that raises the question, well, how do you ensure that happens? How do you secure that? Well, that's something that can be done through uh, legal covenants. Um, and those legal covenants could would, would transfer if, if there was a sale of an asset, that affordability would need to be secured in that building on that property uh, in perpetuity. So that's a, a legal mechanism that's been used very well in the past, and there's no reason why it couldn't be used again to ensure that the units always stay affordable. You were talking about smart city technology at the Board of Trade today and how it can address mobility issues. You'll be addressing affordability concerns later today. Uh, in your conversations around this, what are some of the ideas you think we need to, to focus on and entertain as we go about building more sustainable, affordable communities? I think one of the great opportunities, particularly in the Vancouver region, is to reinforce this connection between transit and adding density, really livable density, to reinforce that connection and not to get too caught up or too lost in the idea that there's a technological fix that can address traffic congestion or that can shorten the commute. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that will truly provide for a livable region will be if people have the opportunity to live very close to where they work. And even if you add autonomous vehicles or you add smart uh, technology around monitoring your traffic, a long commute's a long commute. And as you get denser, you will always have traffic congestion, whether it's an autonomous vehicle or not. So the opportunity is really to think about, wait a minute, let's not plan around the car. Let's actually plan around transit and walking. And if we're going to plan around transit and walking, we need to ensure we're adding the affordable housing because to your point earlier, you know, I've heard about some of the speculation that's been going on in the city. The market's not going to do it. Um, it's just not going to happen by default. And that's why you need to have the affordable housing piece linked in with the building of transit infrastructure. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not resigned on all of this, but I wonder whether you, you're getting close to being resigned and, and the feeling that uh, maybe our public officials need to level with people more. You know, there there is just this movement in our city as well, and it's not a very nice movement that talks about trying to repel global capital, trying to trying to essentially, you know, act like King Canute and try to hold up the waves. Um, is, is that something we just have to frankly accept and try to, uh, you know, try to navigate ourselves? Because it just seems like it's a, you know, it's, it's an overwhelming, wave of the flight of global capital and that we're a small community that is probably disproportionately going to be affected by it when it when it comes here. There's a public interest in ensuring that people have access to housing and uh, particularly key workers. People need, should be able to live close to where they work and not be pushed out to the fringes of the city. Capital in some ways running up against that where there's a role for government to play a role in ensuring that people have access to the housing that they need. And I would say, you know, if you think you're going to stem the tide of um, 
<laughs> globalization and global capital, like, sorry, too late. Um, I'm not even sure how you would even remotely begin to do that at a policy level. But what you what you can do is, you know, put both feet on the ground and say, look, the way we've been providing housing hasn't worked for everyone. In fact, large sections of our population are being excluded. So let's embrace a new model. Let's do it in a new way. And that's what we're trying to do with creative housing is say, look, there's actually something we can do here. We're not helpless. We can build at scale a significant amount of affordable rental and ensure that everyone has access to housing. We can do it. We've done it in waves in the past. And now is the moment to act. Now is the moment to do it again. And the risk, of course, is theoretical dilly-dallying, thinking that somehow this is about stopping the flow of global capital. Um, I, I think those kinds of conversations take us off in the wrong direction. Yeah. We have the expertise in this country to build affordable rental at scale. We can create beautiful projects that have wonderful public spaces that are integrated with schools and with libraries that are real destinations and offer a really high quality of life. We can do that. It's just a matter of coordinating and aligning between a variety of different organizations, whether it's BC Housing and CMHC and an organization like Creative Housing and bringing in the other partners that have the expertise uh, to deliver. So I actually don't think we're hunting for a solution here. I think we know what to do. I think that it's just not been done at a scale that will really have an impact. So let's embrace doing it at a whole new scale. Let's put our level of effort there. Yeah, let's focus on the right things. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jennifer, it's been great having you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. That's Jennifer Kiesmatt, CEO at the Creative Housing Society and the former planner for the City of Toronto. Coming up next, our weekly tech panel is going to join us. With our weekly tech panel, we're going to talk about net neutrality, healthcare and electronics, and about $8 billion in complaints against Facebook and Google. Joining us in studio, Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa, and Brittany Whitmore, CEO and founder at Xvera Communications. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. So what does the GDPR make us do? What do you think? What's, what's it up to? Well, I don't know if it's going to impact us here in Canada at all. Uh, although I've been getting those privacy email confirmations from almost every entity that I deal with. It's actually not a bad <laughs> opportunity to get rid of some of the sites you don't want yeah. to deal with anymore. So I didn't know I was still using these guys. Yeah. 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 So. Mm. Yeah. I don't think I've responded positively to a single. I've just deleted every email. Just, oh, this is great. It's like a spring cleaning opportunity in a certain way with my computer, it feels like. So I, I guess it's an opportunity to ask the question. If you were confused before, now you know they're they're coming to you and saying, "Please reconfirm that you know you're comfortable with our privacy standards." So uh, you know if you weren't comfortable before, now's your opportunity to actually read the fine print and and uh, <laughs> you know make an informed decision. Well, here's one of the the, the issues behind these complaints of just coming from a consumer rights advocacy group. They're saying that the choice being given to consumers is either risk losing your account and being blocked or agreeing to the terms and conditions. And they're arguing that's not really free consent. Is there a middle ground here, Brittany? 
Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you see Facebook saying, okay, if you're not going to comply with this, you can't use Facebook anymore. So you're really forced to, you know, um, just, okay, let us use your data, whatever. I think, you know, there's got to be a middle ground. Otherwise, what is the point of even having this regulation? I think you have to give people the the chance to say, no, you can use my data. Yes, you can't use my data. You have to delete my data, whatever it may be. At least with Facebook, there appear to be middle grounds galore in that you can work through your privacy settings. It's it's just that a lot of sites don't have this middle ground. It's it's an all or nothing type of proposition. Yeah, but Facebook has, you know, a series of complaints against it already, you know, eight billion dollars worth of complaints. So I'm not sure that these new rules uh you know, work in the favor of these of these companies very much right now. No, I think it's quite they're not. quite restrictive. I think it's right now we're seeing an extreme in one direction. And I think what will naturally happen is that the, the companies will have to work with the regulators and bring it sort of back to the middle ground. Yeah, because if if the regulations are in a true sense effective and restrict the amount of data that these companies have, don't the companies themselves become essentially less reliable Absolutely. to their own clients? And less valuable because yeah. a lot of these companies are based, so their value is based on that data that on they comprehensive have. comprehensive data. Exactly. And data that they're then able to provide to third parties, which, not anymore. And, and, and they will argue, and some will argue, that their ability to take that data and harness it is for the purpose of making our lives better. And, they, and they'll argue that, right? Google will argue that. They'll say, listen, I'm taking your data uh, and I'm mining your data to make your life better so that I can make you offers and make you think and, and present things to you on a daily basis that are relevant to you. So, uh, you know, there will be a, a customer experience aspect to this as well that will diminish over time if these, if these uh, you know, uh, restrictions get stronger. Yeah, we've seen Google make that argument, for example, to the United Kingdom saying that give us your national healthcare data and we can help you improve a really massive system. And there are, of course, many concerns that come along with that. Do you think we're at a turning point yet? We have these new regulations, more to come, we think, from the EU. Is this sort of the the point where things start to change? That's a really interesting point um, because a lot of these companies, I remember before when I was here, we talked about how a lot of the North American uh, tech companies have this monopoly on the quality of data that they have, which is going to allow them to advance further in things like AI. Um, so this actually puts a burden on those companies and allows them to not be able to compete in those arenas. Yeah, I mean, I think we could be at the forefront of of something along the lines of what we're seeing in Europe here in North America. It's 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 harder to believe that the the North American companies are are going to follow suit or the government here is going to follow suit. But it'd be great to have. Uh, you know, a, a day where the data was owned by uh, by the by the consumer here in North America. I, does, I, I don't see it coming anytime soon, but it would be it would be nice. Without though that kind of standardization of regulation out there, are we going to witness uh, a world in which it is um, safer and less safe to be, uh, say, a consumer in particular countries with data? Definitely. And it's also going to make it more challenging for cross-border business because you're going to have to have a different version of your digital product for every market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you're somebody in Europe, uh, you're likely to have less, uh, you know, less things that are relevant to you, you know, when you log into the platform on a daily basis. But it'd be interesting to know if you fly from Europe to New York, are you going to are you going to see the same things, or because you're, or because you're an EU citizen, are you yeah. going to be restricted? So that's as, that's going to be the tricky part. And as a North American company, are you going to be um, on the watch to make sure that any European users you have, 
you, uh, you, get this protection. They have to. Yeah. That, and that's that's what the law says. If they're an EU uh, citizen, then it, it doesn't matter where they are in the world. And so these, uh, you know, that this is why we're seeing, uh, you know, U.S. companies, Twitter, you know, they're all based here in, in, in the U.S. So they're all sending out these these messages. We regularly talk to the people from Open Media on our on our podcast here. Uh, I would imagine that this is going to be an opportunity for consumer rights organizations mm-hmm. to really go crazy and uh, and and demand of the regulators what other countries are providing. Absolutely. And it's also an interesting opportunity. You know how we had the big scandal with fake news in the States. I mean, this is an interesting opportunity for us to break down some of those silos that create bias and limits to information that we receive on our social media platforms, for example, which I think would be a really great thing for overall awareness of issues. In our regular open media segment, we also talk a lot about net neutrality. These rules set to expire in June in the U.S., but Canada's House of Commons recently voted to enshrine net neutrality into law, a really symbolic gesture, but one that's meant to guide upcoming reviews. What sort of impact do you think this is going to have, Brittany? I'm so excited. I'm so proud of Canada. You know, this was a, this was something I was really actually kind of stressed about before when I first learned, oh, the U.S., you know, they're coming up for, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And so I was really, really proud that Canada's doing the net neutrality thing. It's extremely important. There's there's no way that she would be it, seriously lim- being able to access information online. This has basically become a right that we need. Table stakes. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see... Uh, Canada taking the lead on this, although it's it's probably more symbolic in nature than anything else, because mm-hmm. most of the the power is out of the U.S. and that's where most of the harm could can take place. Um, so you know, I, I I hope that the U.S. follows suit. I hope they they look north and and see that you know another large partner of theirs is doing the right thing. But if we were to look north here in Vancouver, we would also find that we don't have particularly uh, what I would call the neutrality of some sort. Uh, there the access to the pipes is actually very, very restrictive when you travel north. Um, A lot of the providers are still very much on dial-up modems and uh, things that we now just, you know, we've scrapped long ago that are in our junk stores and, you know, e-reuse bins somewhere. Yeah. I I mean, I think there's a, there's a, difference between infrastructure and net neutrality. I yeah. think that the the access to data is a different issue. And I think making that an even playing field, I think, is the, is the more important cause and, here. And, and to my point, I guess the, the government has been trying to pour some money into broadband access. For remote communities and, and the and, and private businesses are doing doing so as well. I know I know Telus is making massive investments in infrastructure across the country. Um, I, I can't speak for Bell and Rogers, but I know Telus is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, over time, that will improve. But the concept of you know the, the data providers potentially restricting uh, access for their own ben- financial benefit that's that's one that I think. Mm-hmm. You know, need, needs to be <laughs> dealt with quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For our final story, when was the last time either you bought something at Best Buy, Brittany? Oh, not. Well, let me see. Well, I was just in Best Buy because I got my computer there about nine months ago and it stopped working. So I had to get it, get it okay. fixed. <laughs> yeah. I what about a, you, Alex? It's been over a year for sure. Really? Yeah. Wow. Really? I got yeah. a 4K TV at Christmas. And you went to Best Buy? Yeah. You yeah, just buy it online? Yeah. Yeah. But well, yeah. Had to go and pick the thing up. But I also just got my phone there like a couple months ago, actually. What about you? There you go. I go in. 
probably once every few months to pick up either a cord that I need or something for my... Oh, gosh. The cords are really marked up there. I don't have a Prime account yet. But anyway, yeah. Best Buy, they, they clearly have their market segment. They have the experience element to it. You can go in and test things. But now they're sort of toying with enhancing their services. And in the U.S., rolling out the ability to buy healthcare wow. from Best Buy. And this looks in its current form as uh, services for elderly adults, monitoring services, et cetera. Does this make sense? I love this. I think this is a brilliant move for them because you've seen their market dry up a bit with just what you were saying. You know, people are buying stuff on Amazon. Why would you buy your cords there? But when you're talking about something personal like healthcare and you're talking about perhaps people from earlier generations, they want to talk to people. So I think that's absolutely brilliant because that's going to maintain their physical operations more than a TV or a cord or whatever ever could. And also, I believe that things like digital health therapeutics and anything related to health as far as technology goes is really going to take off in coming years. So I yeah. think Amazon I is already in this space in the United States. Yeah, I agree. And TELUS is up here in, yeah. uh, in Vancouver. So I think it's natural. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, be interesting is even, if you, even if you had doctors sitting in Best Buys at one point in the future, because you could literally go shopping <laughs> while you wait. That'd be interesting. <laughs> That'd be great. That's good. But does Best Buy stand a chance if Amazon's in this space? I think that's... That's the question. I think if they can deliver that level of care, actually, you know, for the medical market, I think that it's, it sounds like a great idea to me. They might need to reposition that segment a little, but... Uh, they may also have to look beyond healthcare. I mean, it, this is a, it's a nice test. Let's see if, it, like, see if they get any traction from it. But uh, if they don't, they, they need to look at other things. Otherwise, they'll be in trouble. They'll be out of business in a few years otherwise. Because I wonder if we're not going to reach a point where it's Alexa we ask our our problems to, right? Oh, we're already we've to... already we've already reached that point, yeah. right? So, you know, Best Buy is on Best Buy is on its last legs, this and is, Alexa this is... will tell our neighbors uh, yes. about uh, about <laughs> yes. what we're looking for and yes, what kind of coverage. <laughs> yeah, there you go. As always, both thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for thanks. having us. That's Brittany Whitmore, CEO and founder at Xvera Communications, and Ali Portad, CEO at Progressa. 